You're listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Igrani Yu. My guest today is Lex Sokolin. My name is Lex Sokolin, and I'm the Global Director of Fintech Strategy at Autonomous Research. An independent research firm focused on the financial services industry. He joins us today from London. Thanks for joining us, Lex. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about your role at Autonomous Research and what you're focusing on there. Absolutely. So I'm the Global Director of Fintech Strategy, and what that really means is trying to parse out how innovation is going to change both incumbents and the startups. While we do spend time on uh, insurance, we also look at banking, asset management, payments and exchanges and so on. Right. That would be really interesting work, I imagine, and probably lots to learn as you flip between the different verticals within financial services. Do you see any overall trends within FS? This is definitely something that observers and industry participants miss. There's a danger of just seeing that your symptoms are relevant to you. So if you're in banking, you might see neobanks. If you're in insurance, it's insuretech. If you're in Uh, money management, it might be robo-advisors. But all of these things at their core are very much connected. And the overarching trend is just raw digitization, um, which has happened to different parts of the economy. Right. When you look at the implications on incumbents and how incumbents are reacting to these new entrants, do you see common tactics that are either more or less successful? Uh, That's a great question. I guess you have to start with who you're who you're really rooting for. Do you want the incumbents to to do well and defend their market share? Or do you want the startups to build new businesses and new services? Or do you want the artificial intelligence companies, whether from the West or from China, to come in and redefine the roles of different actors in the value chain. So to make it a little bit more concrete, if you think about the financial services industry broadly, you can say there are kind of the factory where the financial product is made. So you can think of that as a manufacturer or in banking, that would be deposits and insurance, it would be the underwriting. And you can think of whoever's focused on distribution as the store. And that store can be in a phone, it can be in a branch, it can be in a social network. And then everything in between, the stuff that glues it together is the middle office. And in the middle layer, there's actually quite a bit of commonality. So once you figure out a CRM for uh, insurance or a CRM for financial advisors, you can take a very similar approach to building a platform in a different but adjacent industry like banking, for example. So when, when you look across the different parts of the industry, the challenges are surprisingly similar. The large incumbents generally don't know how to be customer-centric. They tend to be very manufacturing and product-centric and have large salespeople uh, forces to push that stuff out, but they don't know how to design digital products that are customer-centric first. And so you, you see this challenge across each one of the different verticals. Right. That's really interesting, especially as I think industries and companies tend to silo themselves or or feel like their problems are unique to themselves. Of the three of banking insurance and wealth management, do you feel like one of them has has dealt with some of the issues better than some of the other industries? (laughs) Um, Well, I'll I'll say this. I think insurance has had an easier time dealing with the insure tech threat. 
And when most people think about the core threat, and I don't think this is necessarily true, but um, people categorize the idea that your customers will, will be taken away by fintech companies or will be taken away by the large tech firms. And I think the, the insurance incumbents have had a chance to watch this unfold in the other verticals. And as a response, what we've seen is corporate venture arms spun up to invest in early stage insure tech and essentially co-opt innovation. So the, the startup sector is outsourced research and development for the incumbents. And if you're able to get corporate venture up, you're really able to redirect a lot of the energy that the startups bring towards helping you become better. So this language of partnership and collaboration um, and B2B2C models, that's all happened in the last three to four years. And because insurance was attacked later, they, they've been able to essentially put up this uh, honeypot, put up the walls much, much more effectively than I think the other, the other verticals. It sounds like the banking and wealth management industries have learned some lessons early. What's one big lesson that insurers should be taking from their financial services peers? With banks, you really have, we've been watching the decline in the number of bank branches, uh, especially in Europe. Um, and certainly in Asia in terms of how people interact with payments and their money. Um, and so with banking and deposits, I think the erosion of the bank branch has been very, very acute. With wealth management and robo-advice and things like Robinhood or Betterment or Nutmeg um, and on a more global scale and financial, that's also been quite uh, damaging or, or, or quite impactful to the wealth management industry. But the way it's had an impact has been very surprising where instead of there being a customer attrition, it's not that the customers have all left, it's that the product pricing has collapsed. So you're treating customers in a new way. Things are much cheaper because you're delivering them digitally. Um, and because the price points are lower on the distribution side, your product is 70% less expensive. And you can look at BlackRock and Vanguard and Fidelity for those comparisons. And certainly this is happening in insurance, in select products. Uh, you think about something like paper, mile, uh, auto insurance, where the sort of the whole concept is about reducing the, the total amount that you pay. But it's, it's a little bit surprising because it starts at the customer, but the impact is on the product. You've mentioned robo-advice and wealth management, and it's an area where you have some personal experience. About 10 years ago, you founded a startup focused on robo-advice for wealth management. Can you tell me about that? In 2010, um, I was building Nest Egg out of, um, out of Columbia, where I was doing a, an MBA and a JD, and I was spending time all over New York City um, trying to raise money, trying to persuade people that this was important. Kind of the key to robo-advice is obvious and true, which is that no matter how much money you have, you should be able to get good financial advice. And whether it's $50 or $50,000 or $50 million, there's a good answer for how to manage your finances, which is diversified asset allocation, being smart about risk tolerance and fitting that to your profile. I'm curious, in 2010, what was the reception like for something like robo-advice? In 2010, the idea that somebody would want to take a $50 account or a $500 account uh, into a firm like Goldman Sachs, for example, was nonsense. Uh, and of course, that is completely the opposite today. Goldman 
is moving incredibly quickly into the retail space with their digital lender, with their neobank in the UK, and certainly with acquisitions of robo-advisors as well. So there was a ton of pushback in 2010 from the wirehouses, from um, investors, from VCs who at the time, you know, the word fintech for venture capital wasn't wasn't yet in the mainstream. But it was an, an amazing experience because by 2013, all of that has shifted. So my conversations went from me trying to pitch a value proposition to capture young clients and millennials in the platforms where they live, in the channels where they live. It went from that to prospects and clients uh, reaching out instead to pitch me on the same thing, that they needed it. And the first month of 2013, we had more incoming interest than I would say you know, the three years before. So that, that shift, I think, created a sense of confidence in me that even when you might be wrong in terms of your timing, or you might be communicating with people who are skeptical, end of the day, a lot of that is just conservatism and a lack of a desire to take on risk. So I found, I found that experience and then the shift towards uh, needing these solutions to be uh, extremely educational. I noticed that you describe yourself as a futurist, and I imagine that you're maybe in a similar situation. I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth, but where you are talking about emerging or current technologies and how they are going to change the way that we live and perhaps dealing with some healthy skepticism on the other side. Absolutely. So you could not have a more skeptical person than a hedge fund manager that buys and sells bank stocks based on cash flows and interest rates and is doing so on a quarterly timeline, like what's happening within you know, the next year. And in one of the most conservative parts of the industry you can find. So people who are very much cash flow oriented, mathematics and accounting oriented, and looking at an extremely regulated and slow to move space that so far has been uh, damaged, but not truly hurt by the innovation happening. And so my idea was that if I'm able to persuade the harshest skeptic, that is the actual work that needs to be done. You know, it's easy to go to a tech conference and say, everybody should buy a cryptocurrency, you know, bank in your pocket on a USB drive. That's not a difficult uh, kind of persuasion technique to do that to somebody who is in a position of power, both economically, as well as relative to the organization they're in and persuade them is is very meaningful and what what you learn over time is that you actually you don't need to persuade people at their core you don't have to do it fundamentally about everything they believe you can just do it a little bit you move somebody 1% over you chip away at their skepticism and that leads them to open up a venture arm or put a junior analyst on understanding millennial investing trends and you just you push people just a little bit towards the, what I think is the the right direction for the industry as a whole. You end up having kind of a uh, an echoing effect across all these different players and a ton of leverage off of the audiences and the the assets that they control. So in my role as as a research director. You know, I certainly try to get to an answer that I believe is true, and then I try to tell the story in a way that the skeptic 
can internalize. And that means very data-oriented storytelling uh, backed by revenue pools, market sizing, uh, economic cases, as well as sort of vast amounts of actual activity that is happening in the space that if you just spend the time looking at what people are making, you, you can't help but come away being extremely excited about what the future looks like. That does sound exciting, Lex. And I'm also excited to continue our conversation in the next episode. Thanks for making the time to speak with me. Wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Join me in the next episode as we talk in more detail about artificial intelligence, what it means for the insurance industry, and what it is and what it isn't. You've been listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast with your host, Igrani Yu. To find more episodes and to subscribe, visit Accenture.com slash insurance influencers.